Computers, as you may have gathered already, are insanely complicated things. Uh, they, 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 are, uh, they consist of billions of transistors, uh, each of which acts like a switch, and you have to, you know, put, design this, put it all together, uh, such that it, you know, does all the wonderful things that a computer does now. And you think about the possibility of actually designing one of those and getting it correct, and it seems virtually impossible, right? Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of After Office Hours. Today we had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Daniel Soren. Yes, Dr. Soren is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at Duke University and he researches his research interests around computer architecture and dependability. In this conversation we dive into some of those interests and we also hear about his company. Yes, he actually founded uh, his company Real Time Robotics about five or six years ago and it's pretty unique because um, Dr. Soren spent a lot of time in academia before actually becoming an entrepreneur and it's interesting to hear how that actually started and where he hopes to take that in the future. For sure. So we hope you guys enjoy and without further ado, Dr. Soren. Dr. Soren, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, speak with us today. I sort of wanted to dive right in uh, since you're an entrepreneur and a professor. So how did real-time robotics start and I guess how did you meet your fellow co-founders? This is an interesting story. Um, so about six years ago now, um, I was at a uh, dean's luncheon for faculty. Uh, the dean holds a, uh, one of these all Pratt faculty meetings twice a year. And I was sitting next to a new faculty member in robotics, George Konadaras. And I was having a lot of fun chatting with George and we decided we should have lunch. And so about a week or so after that, we went for lunch. And as with many good ideas, it starts over food. Um, and so we were talking about what he does. Uh, George is a roboticist, I'm a computer architect. And um, George was explaining to me, what are the open problems in his field? What are people trying to solve um, that, you know, if you solve them, it would make a major difference. And one of the problems he um, discussed was something called robot motion planning, which is if you have a robot arm in some pose, how do you get it from where it is to where you want it to be without hitting stuff? And it turns out that without hitting stuff part is hard. It's not conceptually hard. Uh, you're engineers, you can do the math. It's just a bunch of computational geometry, but it's computationally hard. It takes a long time. And so we were discussing this, why it takes so long, why you don't just run it on a graphics processor and make it go faster. And he eventually explained to me slowly, because I didn't know what I was talking about, that even with the GPU, a graphics processor, it's still way too slow. Now, as a computer architect, this is my like dream situation. We have something that goes too slowly. I'm going to fix that by building new hardware. And so, you know, afterwards, we, we um, 
spent the afternoon Googling because it seemed really obvious to me that somebody would have done this. And our conclusion after a, an afternoon of Googling and finding basically nothing uh, was that architects and roboticists were clearly not friends. This, this, discussion, had never, <laughs> this discussion had never happened before. Um, and so we enlisted two of my students, a PhD student and an undergrad whiz kid, and we started. And our initial efforts were a little bit um, misdirected, um, but we eventually found the right way to go. And within about a year, we had something working that was about a 1,000 to 10,000 times faster than the state of the art. So, you know, something that would have taken you several seconds was now happening in under a millisecond. Oh, wow. And yes, wow. Um, and, you know, that's with two students in academia and uh, a funny-looking rig that we had uh, whipped together in the North Building. And so that's where it all started. So those are the founders, me and George, and the two students. And uh, I guess that is the the start of the founding story. I could continue on indefinitely, but uh, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a <laughs> chance to re-steer the conversation. Yeah, this is great. I'm I'm curious at what point you realized you had a unique solution to this problem. I'm sure the development process wasn't completely linear, um, and if there were any points in time where you were struggling and thought maybe you were going to throw in the towel, how did you motivate yourself to continue working on this problem? I'll answer that direction a little bit in a roundabout fashion. Um, so our initial approach was to solve the problem directly. So as I mentioned to you before, the way people had done it was with a whole bunch of computational geometry. Multiplications, divisions, dot products, cross products, all that good stuff. And we figured, well, we'll just make hardware that does that faster. In retrospect, that was not the smartest thing any of us had ever done before. Because if you're trying to outcompute a graphics processor, you're going to fail. And fail we did. Um, but it wasn't terribly long after that that we had the insight of, well, if we're building new hardware, we don't have to do the software the same way. We could totally change what we're doing. And it was at that moment that we realized, oh, there's a way around this problem. And without boring you with the engineering details, unless you would like to hear them, um, when you reconsider and you, re you co-design the hardware and the software, there was a real opportunity there to do things that were far more efficient than what people are doing with computational geometry. So we didn't ever feel like throwing in the towel, though there was definitely a moment in time where we looked back on what we had done initially and realized we had certainly wasted some time doing something that was, in retrospect, rather foolish. Yeah, and it sounds like it became apparent um, at this Dean's Luncheon that, you know, roboticists and computer architects um, didn't really talk that much. Why do you think that was? I mean, it doesn't seem like super obvious why that's the case. And secondly, when you started out, did you have an idea of specific robots that you wanted to improve? Or was it just sort of, sort of just a general um, sort of direction of innovation that you could apply to a wide range of robots? Those are both questions that require somewhat involved answers. Um, so I'm likely to forget the second question before I get to the second answer. Um, sure. <laughs> so interdisciplinary work is very exciting and you can end up with great contributions, but it can be harder in that it requires people to understand two different fields or three different fields or whatever it is. And so to do the work we needed to do, our students, I mean, there was a serious learning curve 
neither one of them knew robotic motion planning. One of them really did not know a whole lot of computer architecture at that point. Um, and so it, it wasn't immediately obvious how to start that kind of a project. Um, but I've done many projects like this over the years. Uh, no, no other ones became companies, but where I meet up with people who do something very different from my field. So as a computer architect, I design computers that go fast. I'm a computer hardware guy. Um, but I collaborate with, for example, Robert Calderbank. Robert's an information theorist, um, and it often requires a fairly smart student to translate between us, at least to get from the math that Robert knows to something that I can grasp. And so, you know, it requires strong students and students who are willing to take a bit of a leap, right? Because you have to master two, two areas. Um, the second question, which truly I have now forgotten, you're going to remind me. Yeah, it's uh, when you started out, um, did you have an idea of the types of robots that you wanted to improve or was it just a general? No, robot planning, robot motion planning is a general thing. And so it can apply to any robot and somewhat intriguingly, also autonomous vehicles. Um, as I've been taught by the roboticists I hang out with now, an autonomous vehicle is effectively a robot with wheels at the bottom. And you have to solve the same problem of getting from where you are to where you want to be without hitting stuff. It, the problem's a little bit different, um, but you know, from 30,000 feet, it's a very similar problem. That, that's fascinating. In your role as a chief architect uh, in your company and um, as a professor, what does your day-to-day -day look like and how much time do you see spent, I guess, with either role? Um, boy, it varies wildly. Um, both of them do. They vary wildly. Um, as a professor, uh, you know, we spend most of our time doing research. Um, but even, you know, from semester to semester, what we're teaching has an impact on how our life, uh, how, how our schedule shapes up. Uh, this semester, I'm teaching ECE CompSci 250, which has 420 some odd students and is a very different beast from, you know, teaching a grad seminar. It's just a different experience. Um, and then at the, at Real-Time Robotics, my job is also highly variable. Um, one of the things I've taken on is finding the wonderful people who work there. So I spend a lot of quality time on LinkedIn. I've done hundreds of interviews at this point um, because bringing in the best people is what often matters the most. Um, and that can vary. I mean, if, if we're hiring a bunch of people, I am very busy. If we're not, I am less busy on that aspect of my job. Uh, another part of my job there is I handle almost all of the uh, intellectual property issues. So patenting, um, if our engineers come up with a brilliant new idea, I have to communicate that to the patent attorney and we have to go back and forth such that, uh, you know, eventually I'm pretty sure the legal language actually represents what it is we did and covers everything we want to cover. Uh, once again, if we're trying to get a patent out the door, that's very busy. If we're not, less busy. And so for the most part, it balances out well. Um, but there are certainly times where everything lines up poorly. And I've got five interviews and two grant proposals and uh, a couple hundred students who are not 
thoroughly happy with me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering if it, there was a kind of a learning curve for you to have to deal with all the kind of administrative, not necessarily administrative, but legal patenting type stuff um, as, an enge- as a trained engineer. Um, you know, there's been a learning curve with all of it. Um, <laughs> before starting the company, in, in fact, before the project, I knew nothing about robotics. And, you know, I like to joke that real-time robotics is a robotics business. And I'm neither a roboticist nor a business person. <laughs> and um, <laughs> sort of it, it, it leads to one having to find one's way for almost everything. Um, I did not know a lot about patenting. I had filed a, I, I'd been involved in filing a couple before, but never to this level. Um, so, yeah, I've learned a lot about that. Um, in, including, I would not want to have to do that for a living. It's an important conclusion. Um, I've learned a lot about interviewing, and I find that to be very valuable, um, particularly as I just <clears throat> spent last month interviewing prospective PhD students. And um, I like to think I'm getting better at that. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, along those same lines, how integrated are your roles as an entrepreneur and professor? When you're thinking about ways to sort of improve or do something for your company, right? Does it take a conscious sort of like dedicated session or, you know, when you're doing research or something like that, do you get an idea for real-time robotics? You know, how, how mixed are those two processes in your head? Um, at this point, they are utterly separated. It is because Duke is a nonprofit, um, Duke resources and Duke students can't be used to further the aims of real-time robotics. There, there are conflict of interest rules that should be there, um, and I have simplified the matter by drawing a very straight line between those two things. So I, I don't do any robotics here at Duke. Somewhere down the line, I've toyed with the idea of trying to teach it, um, but I, I'm not doing any research in the area here. That's interesting. Uh, and, and along those lines, publishing an academic paper in an academic journal is definitely different than innovating in the entrepreneurial space. Do you think that you or other entrepreneurs have an advantage over those who stay purely in the academic space in, in terms of their research, um, in terms of how you can innovate and come up with new ideas? Um, interesting. It has probably forced me to focus a little bit on ideas that I think really will have impact. Um, you know, I can always publish papers that are intellectually interesting and others will be excited to read and they may or may not have impact down the road, right? Um, I think after being in the industry, it's a little bit harder perhaps to get as excited about something where you're like, you know, as this stands, I just don't see how anybody's going to use it, but I'm pretty confident somebody else will build on it later and figure it out. And perhaps my patience for that is a little bit lower. Um, other skills, I don't know if they really translate back as much, I guess, except for interviewing potential students. And all right, one other thing I have learned. Um, so we have a CEO of Real-Time Robotics who is... Uh, definitely a you know a Jedi master and watching how he observes people and works with people and gets the most out of them that's been useful I've definitely taken away some lessons from that 
Interesting. Wow. I guess your company, you said, um, started in 2016, you know, it's a fairly young company in the large scheme of things. Um, you know, what has been the most exciting thing in your opinion that you have accomplished and where do you, where do you want to go? And I know this is an insanely hard question to ask to any entrepreneur, <laughs> but where do you want, what are you most excited about in the future? So the first time somebody bought our product, that's, that's pretty exciting, right? I mean, it's one thing to accept a paper. It's another thing to put your money out there and say, I want one of those. That, that's super exciting. Um, the future, boy, it'd be nice to sell a whole hell of a lot more of them. Um, there's a variety of different things that are exciting, right? There's the technology part of it. So there are certain new features that are coming. Um, there are certain new um, abilities. Um, something I'm very excited about, for example, is a new idea that we've prototyped for robot work cell optimization. So let's say you want to um, put together a robot work cell, some number of robots, and you've got some number of tasks that need to get done. Okay, where do you put the robots? Which robot does which task in which order? How do you synchronize all this? People have been uh, fighting that problem for years and years and doing a pretty terrible job of it. It's hard. And we came up with a, and by we, I mean somebody, not myself, one of our engineers came up with a really uh, clever solution to this that's both very fast and does much better than what people have been doing. And I'm really excited to see that turn into a product because when we've shown off the prototype, uh, potential customers have been um, pretty much uh, jaw on floor. And I'd like to see that out in the world. So that's some of the technical stuff I'm interested in. It would be really, oh, also somewhere down the line, having a partner for uh, an autonomous vehicle project would be great. Looking forward to that. And then from the business point of view, obviously just selling a lot more stuff and getting that kind of market traction that will um, hopefully just continue to accelerate. That's really neat. That sounds really exciting. And both of us are going to be keeping, I hope our listeners keeping an eye out for new, exciting stuff. Along, along the lines of your role as an entrepreneur, do you, looking back, wish you had kind of ventured it out into industry and into entrepreneurship earlier in your career? So I have a lot of colleagues in academia who, from day one, they're looking, looking to do startups. And I was not that person. I really did not expect to do a startup. And yet, when we had the first processor that worked and was a thousand times faster than what people were doing, and we, you know, we thought change robotics, we kind of had to, right? And um, it, it, it found us more than I found it in terms of doing the startup. And so, yeah, we really had to do the startup at that point, but it wasn't like before then I was super eager to do it. Um, they take a lot of time. Um, and it would take even more time if I was a day-to-day -day engineer there. I would have had to take a leave of absence to make that happen. And prior to now, I don't know that I would have been willing to do that. Wow. I've been at Duke for some time now. Do you think that, I, certainly since I have was a freshman here, I've seen sort of a growth, at least in the entrepreneurship culture with things like I&E. And what do you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on though, that sort of culture, expanding culture, because it seems like on the undergrad side as well, more students are sort of interested in that, would you like to see that grow? And um, would that be something that you want to partake in in the future and help grow? Or? Certainly. 
Um, and in fact, there's a certain amount of wanting to pay it forward. Um, so when we were first getting started, the four of us, um, just sheer good luck. It was really soon after Pratt hired Bill Walker as entrepreneur in residence. And Bill came to an EC faculty meeting and was explaining how he could help people wanting to do startups in Pratt. And after the faculty meeting, I pounced. And <laughs> we have been uh, pestering Bill ever since. Um, and Bill had experience from startups and is just a wise person in general. And we picked his brain. He answered a large number of truly ignorant questions uh, without giggling even once. <laughs> uh, he introduced us to our the, the, the person we hired as CEO. And so that infrastructure, even just having Bill here at that time, was huge for us. It, it was it, That was a game changer for us. And so I'm definitely a fan of having the infrastructure here at Pratt and at Duke-wide even, such that if people want to do startups, they have people they can talk to who know something. Um, and in fact, you know, this week in particular is a very apt time to be talking about this as uh, two EC East founded startups both uh, went public through uh, SPACs for extraordinarily large sums of money. Oh, wow. That's, that's very exciting. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to get your thoughts on this because you, you mentioned that you teach a course like CS250, right? Which is sort of getting to the nitty gritty or at least um, as BMEs <laughs> for us, that's, <laughs> that's nitty gritty. But it's, it's sort of hard, right, to balance teaching a course that is very theoretical uh, with something that is more sort of entrepreneurship based. How do you think that, do you think there should be like classes that like bridge those two? Because right now, right, so we sort of have these computer science classes and then we have these sort of like INE classes and they don't really like mix so much. Do you think that that can be improved uh, or? Um, my field is such that when I teach classes in it, you can't be too theoretical. Um, and one of the things I enjoy about teaching, and I think that students get a kick out of, is that I'm teaching them about stuff that they're currently holding, right? Um, you know, we talk about, you know, today in class, we talked about cash memory. And yes, it can sound like an abstract concept. However, the only reason your laptop and your smartphone are fast and usable is because they have these cash memories that we're talking about right now. So it's not totally hypothetical, and I enjoy that quite a bit. Um, I think I probably would have a little bit of difficulty teaching a much more theoretical class. Um, certainly the skills you learn in I&E are great. That, that, I'm glad we have that. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, you're at Duke to learn how to learn, right? It's an old saying. I am not taking any credit for that whatsoever. But, um, you know, we shouldn't be teaching you strictly vocational skills. You'll pick those up. You're smart. But if we teach you the, the big ideas and then show you a little bit of how that applies to real stuff, then you're set, right? You know, it's the reason we teach operating systems. We don't teach Windows 10. Right. Along, along the lines of your role as a professor, what, what is your favorite part about teaching? When they get it. Um, <laughs> That's my favorite part about learning, too, by the way. <laughs> um, and, 
When you see a student who's really been struggling and all of a sudden they get it, that is fun. Uh, this semester in ECE CS250, there's a really wonderful point in the course where everything comes together and you see how a computer is built and how it works and how it could run the software you were just forced to put together in homeworks one and two. And you see this light bulb go on and that is a great moment. I enjoy that immensely. Um, not not totally independently of the fact that that's what got me hooked. So I was an undergrad here at Duke, as you probably already know from your research, and um, I took the roughly equivalent course. And when you find out this is how a computer works and that I could build one, well, it's that's exciting. That That's a fun moment as a teacher. Absolutely. You, okay, so you mentioned just now that you were an undergrad at Duke. We were going to ask you, what was your time like here? We've had we've had a streak of uh, on the podcast of professors who happen to also have done their undergrads at Duke. I would love to hear about what it was like back in the day. Were there any extracurriculars that you were involved in, or any any particular memorable uh, traditions, I guess, that still exist today uh, that we that we current students are familiar with? Boy, um, well, certain things I'm glad do not exist today, like my freshman dorm of Haynes Annex on lovely North Campus. Um, I enjoy telling my current students about that and they go North Campus and just look puzzled. Um, I was in the Duke Wind Symphony. I was in the marching band slash pep band. Uh, we were not nearly as good back then. We were loud, but not nearly as good. Um, and I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, loved living on East Campus for three years. Uh, I My senior year was when they uh, switched it over to be uh, freshmen only, and then some of us petitioned to stay. Engineering was much smaller. Everything was in Hudson, plus Tier was used as a library, if anybody can imagine devoting an entire building to books, <laughs> which... What I a know, concept. Today's world just seems totally <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but yeah, everything fit in Hudson, besides wow. the books that were in Tier, I know. Um... And what was interesting for me was coming back after grad school, coming back to Duke to teach, and, you know, people who had been my professors were suddenly my colleagues and uh, suddenly had first names, and that took a little, <laughs> a little bit of a adjustment. Were you excited about teaching? Um, you know, I don't know how early on you taught CS250, but were you excited about teaching the same course that you took as an undergrad? And did you think, like, you know, these are the ways that I want to teach it better or that you <laughs> sort of think that you missed out on as an undergrad? So when I was an undergrad, we actually did things a little bit differently. And in fact, it was different up until about 10 years ago. 250 is a fairly new course by my standards, if not yours. So until that point, CS did its own thing. They had a course that was kind of like 250, but they taught it on their own. It wasn't cross-listed. And EC had a two-course sequence uh, that was flipped from what we do now. So instead of it being architecture and digital design, we did digital design and then architecture. Um, I just absolutely fell in love with the field after taking those two courses and then a, a subsequent advanced computer architecture class, all with the same instructor. Um, but as much as I really truly loved that instructor and was inspired by him, there was one assignment that we did as an undergrad in undergrad architecture uh, for which you can probably still see the scars. <laughs> never got the, never got the darn thing to work. And I was determined when I took over that class <laughs> that that assignment was going away. 
Um, <laughs> That's and, hilarious. And I informed him of this quite soon thereafter. That's so funny. I, I can, in my mind, think of some assignments that I would remember down the line that would want to never see again. A question we like to ask to professors to get a big picture idea of their research and, and the work they do is, if you were on NPR uh, talk radio and you had to explain the scope of your research and its impact in, in a few minutes to a general audience, uh, how, how would you do that? Well, I have several different research projects that I would explain differently. Um, since you've already heard about the robotics, I'm going to pick another topic that I've really enjoyed over the years. <clears throat> so computers, as you may have gathered already, are insanely complicated things. Uh, they, 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 are, uh, they consist of billions of transistors, uh, each of which acts like a switch. And you have to, you know, put, design this, put it all together uh, such that it, you know, does all the wonderful things that a computer does now. And you think about the possibility of actually designing one of those and getting it correct, and it seems virtually impossible, right? Uh, there's just no way that you got the design correct. E even setting aside whether or not somebody was able to manufacture it correctly, which also seems impossible. Let's just put that aside. Did we design it correctly? Does it work correctly in every possible corner piece? And that's really, really hard. And what we do now in industry is we design it, we hand it over to the validation team, and we hope for the best. We wish them well. They try to find as many bugs as they can before they have to ship the part. And in any shipped product, <clears throat> there are bugs. Uh, companies like Intel, AMD, IBM, they publish them. You can go find them online. And most of them you can work around or they don't matter that much or, you know, blue screen of death, we'll blame Microsoft, whatever. Um, <laughs> but it's a major problem insofar as it takes a lot of time and money to try to make sure that you're shipping relatively bug-free products. And so what I wanted to do starting many years ago was work the other way around. So instead of designing the computer processor and handing it over to the validation team and saying, good luck, Starting with what is the state of the art in verification? What can we do with formal verification where we prove something is correct? And then working backwards saying, okay, given that it has to meet this formal verification framework, what's the best design I can make? And so you end up with some sometimes quirky looking designs, but you know that you can formally verify them. Now we can't do this for the whole processor. That's beyond what we've been able to uh, approach, but there's certainly some really complicated parts of it that we've been able to factor out and redesign such that they can be verified. So starting starting with verification and working towards design. And that project has been really exciting. Um, you know, obviously we've published papers because we're academics, um, but it's they, they've been well received and have really led to some interesting follow-on work. The PhD students have gone on and done well. And it just, it, it's a project that I found very rewarding because, well, first of all, it's interesting. They're like little puzzles, which is great, but it matters in the real world as well. This isn't just an abstract problem. Industry spends more than half of its time and money on verification. If we can make that easier, that's a win. With a project like this, are you mainly motivated by what you described as those little puzzles, like solving them, the thrill that you get from that, or the 
you know, there's also the side of application, right? Or is it a combination of both that really make you interested as a researcher? It's both. Um, you know, I have to confess, I've been drawn, the types of problems I like to solve are either interesting puzzles like that, um, or these interdisciplinary projects where I'm really one of only very few people at the intersection of computer architecture and X, something else. So in that case, when I was just discussing, it was the intersection of computer architecture and formal verification, people who know how to prove that things are correct. That's so much fun. It's, it's, it's great to be sort of in your own space, but you do have to make sure, as, as you asked Rohan, that you're solving something people will care about. Uh, yes, it's great that I find it fun, but somebody has to care if we solve it. If you all of a sudden could no longer be a researcher, professor, or let's just say an engineer, uh, what new job would you decide <laughs> to pick up? <laughs> I saw Dr. Soren's expression uh, there. I don't know if a <laughs> podcast can capture the uh, horror of trying to figure that out. Um, having never had another job besides a day camp counselor, I think I'm in trouble right now. Um, I don't know. Um, I spent, this doesn't really answer your question, but I did spend six months working at Intel on a previous sabbatical. So I was still an engineer, um, but at least I wasn't an academia. So that's, that, that's variety, right? Sure. Um, what else? Sure. <laughs> what else would I do? I could imagine teaching in certain contexts that were not um, like a Duke University. Um, boy, I don't know. No, the fact that you're having a, a tough time with this question is proof that you uh, truly love the, the role you have now. I frequently tell people I have found the right job. <laughs> We spoke with one robotics professor on our podcast so far, uh, Dr. Cummings, and um, to sort of head in a sort of different direction, um, you mentioned that real-time robotics is sort of doing some work with autonomous vehicle, vehicles, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and she was sort of speaking a little bit about the policy issues and her views. I guess just in general, um, I know there's sort of a very clear policy sort of tie-in with autonomous vehicles, but... Do you find yourself sort of frustrated or encountering those sorts of policy issues and having to consider them when you go about doing things for real-time robotics, or is that something that you don't really have to worry about? Um, good question. So to do autonomous vehicles as a small startup, we're not, we're not going to be able to do this independently. So right now we have done a prototype in simulation where we can show that our technology would be a big win for autonomous vehicles in terms of how they motion plan. But that's one part of autonomous vehicles, right? And to have impact, we have to be inside a greater stack of technology. No company, no large automaker wants a small startup in their supply chain. That's not going to happen. And so we need to either partner up with one of them or we need to partner with a, one of the many companies that wants to build the brains for autonomous vehicles. Um, and we're looking for the right partner. And at that time, that large partner will definitely have to be dealing with a lot of these policy issues. Um, so for us, it's really, at this point, we're not so much hampered by the policy as by the 
the integration of our technology into a larger whole, which in turn, those folks are hampered by policy at many levels. I, I don't want to get too far into the policy here because I'm going to do a far poorer job of it than Professor Cummings. That's it. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that sort of as a small startup, that challenge of sort of fitting into a larger stack of technology, because I think that's something that is seems pretty common to a lot of tech startups, right? I mean, it's hard to have a design something that's like a standalone, hugely impactful product. True, but we can do that for robotics. We just can't do that for AVs. We saw, we were doing a little pre-podcast research, we saw an article um, in Duke Daily. We saw your, your uh, comments on the role that robots uh, can and, and will play in, in homes and all over. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? And could you elaborate a little more? Sure. Yeah, and to, to add to that, you know, I think, I think this, I've heard before from a few engineers that, right, we've done crazy things like go to the moon, um, but, you know, right now, like, the pinnacle of my home automation is my, uh, yeah. you know, like Roomba or vacuum cleaner. Why do you think that, you know, what's the, what do you think the reason is for that stagnation or lag, I suppose? And um, how do you think that will possibly be surpassed or addressed in the near future? So even outside the home, there's really been two things holding back robotics for a long time. Uh, one of them has been vision. Um, you need reliable robust and relatively inexpensive vision because you can't avoid what you don't see. Um, if it's not robust, no one's going to trust it. If it costs $10,000, it's not going to be in your house, right? And so over the years though, vision has gotten quite a bit better. Um, you know, you can get a Microsoft Connect or a Intel RealSense, it's a couple hundred dollars by two, they're small and you can end up with pretty good vision. The software has gotten better as well. Uh, the other part of that has been motion planning, which is what we do at Real-Time Robotics. Um, motion planning is effectively your reaction time. So if it takes you three seconds to figure out how to get from point A to point B, well, by the time you've decided where to go, your decision could be obsolete because there's now a head between where you're starting and where you decided you were going to go. Um, and so that that reaction time needs to be far faster or else your robot is going to move really slowly or be very flimsy such that if it hits you, you can shrug it off. Um, and so the state of the world for what are called cobots, collaborative robots, has been that they tend to move slowly, not weigh much, and they're kind of flimsy. Which, okay, fine, yes, you can hang out with one of those, but when all is said and done, when you decide you want a robot, you generally don't specify I'd like something slow and imprecise and kind of flimsy. And so that's that's been a great limiter. But you can't have a high-speed, high-precision robot if you can't react quickly. Getting inside the house is a whole nother level, right? Um, you can make a production floor, a warehouse safer. You can engineer it in a way that you can't engineer a house. And that requires even better vision and, and like much, much, much better in terms of robustness and reliability and very fast motion planning as well. You have to be able to react quickly. Uh, the reason you have a Roomba in your house is that reacting in two dimensions as you're tootling along the floor 
isn't really that hard. It's not computationally difficult. You, I mean, you're going to avoid the cat. You'll be fine. Um, but if you have some three-dimensional thing with a you know high degree of freedom arm that's trying to do dexterous tasks, that that's not in your house yet. And because we just can't trust that yet, we're getting there, can't trust that it's going to be safe. When you see if you had to predict like a timeline for when we will have, like you said, cobots ubiquitous in, in homes. Oof. Um, my hunch on that is much like with AVs, it's going to be policy and insurance that drive that rather than technology. Um, I think the technology, I mean, we've got robots, I'll tell you a story. Um, so we've got robots in our lab at uh, real time that are whipping around doing cool stuff. And, you know, if you jam some object in their way, they just seamlessly plan and go right around it. We had a reporter from a local Boston TV station show up wanting to talk about our technology, and he's watching this. And one of our engineers, you know, jams a stick in the way, and the robot plans right over it. And uh, the, the news person, uh, perhaps braver than he ought to be, asked if he could do that with his arm. <laughs> and there was a pause while you could see pe people sort of calculating the insurance implications. <laughs> but, you know, engineers, pretty confident folks, like, sure. <laughs> And sure enough, you know, he, he stuck in his arm and the robot went right over it and around it and got to where it wanted to go. And uh, we, we made the news for, for good rather than bad that night. Um, but we knew we were going to be fine. We know the technology, but there's a difference between we know the technology and it is certified to the level where, where people will buy it and put it in their house. Moving to wrapping up, if you... Would, you know, if you had the chance to give some advice to either sort of an incoming or current undergraduate engineering student, you know, what would you say? It's sort of a super broad question, but just any piece of advice that you think you wish you had known or do you think that would be really helpful for people in that sort of stage of their careers? Um, <laughs> the first piece of advice that usually needs to be said to most of our incoming freshmen, um, I advise students, uh, the first piece of advice is usually get some sleep. <laughs> um, many Duke kids, Duke students show up, they are going to get three majors, two minors, and a couple of certificates while being the president of at least four different clubs. And um, while I admire the ambition, that generally doesn't go well. You're much better off doing four things or five things well than 12 things frantically. Um, so sort of managing a finite amount of time in prioritizing. I, I de I've definitely seen a lot of students struggle because everything's so much fun. And, you know, it's tough to fault them, right? It is. There's so many things you can do at Duke. And figuring out how to, to prioritize what it is you're going to do is probably the most important advice for incoming students, engineers or not. Um, you know, I ran into that myself as an undergrad. I... I uh, this is advice I had to be given when I was an undergrad. And so um, I try to pass that along as well. Were you hoping for something more technical? No, no, we, we appreciate that. As, as current seniors, we're uh, kind of reflective, I guess, on our experience. And, and there's so many different opportunities at Duke. And it's, it's crazy how we're, I'm trying to squeeze in all of the, the last bit of opportunities that I can. So 
in the last more doing it all from the comfort of your room. <laughs> yes, absolutely. One of the another question we typically ask our guests as we wrap up is if you uh, are currently reading any books and if so, what or if you have any book recommendations that you would like to share with our listeners. Book recommendations. I'm currently reading uh, nonfiction, uh, interesting story from not a few decades after the Civil War, an interesting uh, story of a um, a black man who was. Um, defending himself from a, a mob and uh, the, the trial that went on afterwards because he defended himself successfully and just uh, the background history of that era and what it was like for them to live and you know what the law was like and just the whole situation I find it's been a very interesting story and of course all the more so because it, it's true there are all these um, uh, primary documents and even testimony from the trial do you recall the name of that uh um i will in one moment (laughs) hold on (laughs) reading it on an ebook hold on a shot in the moonlight i'll have to add it to my list sounds very interesting but if you haven't read born a crime by trevor noah i would also strongly encourage that that was that was terrific and i read that recently all right sounds good and the last and final question is totally random, but are you? What are your coffee and tea habits? Are you a coffee drinker or a tea coffee. drinker? Coffee, uh, espresso. We got an espresso. So three years ago, I was on sabbatical uh, in Scotland. You can see a little bit of it behind me in my Zoom background, and um, we got hooked on having good coffee, uh, particularly because we couldn't buy an American style coffee maker. They don't exist there, and so. Um, we came back to America, and one of the first things we bought was a good espresso machine. And I am definitely an espresso drinker. No tea. Even after even after a year in the UK, no tea. <laughs> Only if I'm sick. <laughs> Only if I'm sick. That's awesome. Well, this was great. Dr. Soren, thank you so much for your time um, and all of your insights. We really appreciate it. Sure. Nice to meet both of you. Thanks for inviting me. Wow, what a great episode. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking that uh, the dean should just schedule a lunch in every week so that professors can get together and think of new company <laughs> ideas. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, but in all seriousness, like, that's definitely such a huge part of being at a university like Duke or um, any other high-level university where you just have really smart people walking around talking to each other all the time. Yeah, and who would have thought that people from those two fields, like robotics and architecture, are like... You know, turns out they didn't really have, they didn't interact that much. And, you know, that that small interaction, yeah. Looking in from the outside as a biomedical engineer, I just figure all the EC computer science people are all in cahoots with each other, uh, scheming against against the rest of the world. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, I I think it's really cool that Dr. Soren's also able to, like, work with the, you know, different people in different fields on his company and, like, balance that with his research. It gives him sort of, like, two different motivations, I guess, for, like, um, being a professor as well as an entrepreneur. It's sort of like you're, you're always excited about multiple things. This was a great episode. I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Soren. I hope you guys enjoyed. Um, this is, Rowan and I were just talking before, this is going to be our 12th episode we released. So thank you guys for listening to all of our episodes so far. If this is your first one, head back and check out some of our earlier episodes. Maybe click on someone you don't know so well and you will learn about them. Yes, Becky Spinfire. And also, uh, 
Be sure to check us out, as always, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify at After Office Hours. Yes, and on our Instagram page, where we have amazing graphics and posts at After Double Underscore Office Hours. Catch you on the flippity flip. See you next time.